I don't think that it's the contest job to educate the fans. But if the fans continue to be that entrenched in this very specific sensibility, what kind of future can a song contest have? Hello and welcome to the EuroWhat, episode number 125 for the week of July 5th, 2021. I'm Mike McComb and I'm joined today by Ben Smith. Hey Ben. Hey Mike. And our special guest, Meredith Clark. Hi Meredith. Hi guys. We are a group of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. This week, we'll be talking about some of the concerns within the fandom arising from this year's competition. Our guest, Meredith Clark, has written about Eurovision for New York Magazine's Vulture website and is part of our posse of Latvia stands. She recently worked as a senior news producer for the Netflix show Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. Welcome to the show, Meredith. Hi, it's great to be here. How was your Eurovision experience this year? It was fantastic, although very different from many of them past. I watched with only my sister in my apartment Usually, or at least for the last six or seven years, I've had a giant party and it had, I don't know, 10 or 15 people over to enjoy the madness. It was great to have a slightly smaller COVID safe and family centric one. Who were you rooting for this year? I was rooting for Ukraine, hardcore, and my second was Italy. So I ended up feeling very happy with the results. When I saw the original long form video for Shum. I was like, this is the perfect song. I need it. I want to dance in a hazmat suit wherever they are going. Send me to the Road of Bones and let me go to that rave. And yeah, the Italians were hot. Send me a horny. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Something for everyone. Yep. I sent it to so many people and I said, remember when we used to be horny? Because it wasn't a pandemic, (laughs) have this. It will remind you of that time. It worked quite well. And now many of my friends are trying to figure out what kind of vampires they all are. Because, (laughs) my God. And the answer is they're not vampires. They're just 22-year-olds. They're just children. Yeah, they're children who (laughs) haven't yet had to deal with the skin effects of smoking. They're living their truth in a very special way. So top 10 this year was very encouraging. And everyone who ended up in the top 10 were acts that I was excited to see, countries that I was excited to see. It was just fun. And everybody seemed to have fun. I've never seen that at the Olympics or at any other place where we're supposed to be celebrating our own skills. Whatever brings back this year's sense of camaraderie and solidarity I will support. I completely agree with that. Agreed. How did you get introduced to Eurovision? The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert was kind of a family movie for my household. I rented it from a video store, showed it to my best friend, and then brought it back home and said to my mother and my sister, you guys have to watch this. It's great. So we all fell in love with that. And that's how I discovered ABBA. And that's how I found Eurovision. And the other beats were Lordy, 2006 New York Times articles about 
Finland and Eurovision. And then in 2008, I found through an MP3 blog, Pirates of the Sea. And after that, Latvia became my jam. Very solid Latvia. <laughs> Look, get hooked by I, if somebody's going to give you disco pirates with a lot of pyrotechnics, you can't go wrong. And you can't not want to know what comes next. And from then, I've just been following as closely as I could. I love that trajectory. Priscilla is one of my favorite movies. As an 11 or 12 year old in suburban Madison, Wisconsin, watching that movie was great, but also discovering ABBA and then becoming obsessed with them. It ended up having a massive effect on my life. So Eurovision was just always part of it. Like jokes about Waterloo and Eurovision have been a part of my life for 25 years, maybe a little more. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) This ain't the end, no. It's the birth of a new age. You know, man, bro, call me. You know, man, bro, call me. You know, man, bro, call me. When you guys were asking me to come on the show, immediately I thought about the fact that everybody wants to pretend Eurovision isn't political when it is always and always has been deeply political. (laughs) That aspect of things is something we have tried to talk about on the show and often have just not had the toolkit to do so. In 2018, when we were doing our very first off-season, we were trying to figure out a way to break into an episode on discussing why there was so much issue with Israel as the host nation. Mm -hmm. Midway through recording an episode on that, we were like, we're literally just reading a lot of articles almost verbatim. This isn't really working. Let's find a different thing to talk about. Let's let's take 10 minutes. Let's regroup. We've grown as a podcast since then, which is cool. But with things like this, we don't always have the language to get into some of that. And my usual approach to things like that is to get meta about it. For me, I have been really curious, especially since Yamala won. I've been having a hard time figuring out why more people aren't engaging with the competition in a way that acknowledges how important conflicts like that are. And I I haven't even seen it discussed in the fandom. Like, it becomes a thing I bring up when I'm talking with my friends who are conflict reporters, not entertainment people. The thing that I think is most interesting about specifically the Israel element is Hathari got fined for unfurling a Palestinian flag at the competition. That's like something that happens when you're playing American football for not going to the press conference. There is such a institutional commitment to avoiding anything that seems uncomfortable that everything becomes politics if it means that one of the countries with money might have to address something important. There was... Uh, a two-part series from Catherine Baker this year talking about both last year's contest lineup and this year's contest lineup that I thought did a really good job of calling out that Europe very much wants to present itself as post-racial. Mm-hmm. And Eurovision is essentially a stage to do that, even though when you look at the contest, there has not been a solo performer of African descent that has won. There is one person, and they were part of a group. And we saw exactly how well that goes over this year. There are any number of reasons to argue that the Netherlands wasn't going to win again. But I happen to think that it was straight racism in a lot of ways, because there was 
actual inflection of African rhythms and it was reflective of heritage as opposed to assimilation. And that has been a huge point of contention in every European country for the last several years and certainly since the last five years. It was really disappointing. Yeah, and I think that was a sentiment for a lot of the performers of color at this year's contest. It felt like all of them underperformed on the scoreboard. Mm -hmm. And in a context like Eurovision, you're comparing art, which is a very subjective thing. But there's this gut feeling, and a lot of people have this same gut feeling of something's not quite right here, but how do you articulate that in a way that leads to a better outcome? Yeah, I can point to this one moment in Italian soccer where fans pelted bananas at a player and he was on the home team. Oh, geez. Because he was black. There is a willingness to just ignore that kind of racism. Somehow it doesn't count. And when you have to be nationalist like you are during a competition like Eurovision, suddenly the blinders get turned on and only the thing that looks like you becomes the thing that matters. And it was much starker this time than it has been in the past, I thought. And I really wonder about how Eurovision is going to continue. I don't think that it's the contest job to educate the fans, but if the fans continue to be that entrenched in this very specific sensibility what kind of future can a song contest have if you can put dubstep into a bunch of songs no matter how many years too late it is you can accept that a black man represents the netherlands you can accept that a black man represents sweden it starts to feel aggressively insular to think that this might continue much further or that it will keep going on like this and they're not going to have good music we're just not going to have fun (laughs) no no well i think part of what's helping it be more visible is the breakdown of the televote versus the jury vote Mm -hmm. because if you look at the televote from this year all of the performers of color with the exception of malta are basically in the bottom half sweden's up there too but that's low for sweden right It's very apparent now that we have the split of the voting. We were hearing rumblings of, oh, it's going to be San Marino's best year ever, and then they're in the bottom. Thinking of the example you gave of sports fans throwing bananas at their own player, Albert Hein, a supermarket in the Netherlands, did a riff on the broccoli line to sell broccoli. What still pisses me off is that I really liked that song. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was fun. I thought it was energetic and had a lot of what the rest of the spirit of the contest was in terms of people being excited about newness and togetherness and solidarity. In the end, we got a ton of TikToks of Goa and Monaskin and Blind Channel hanging out. Don't get me wrong, I love them. I love all of them. And I think it's really sweet that they're now friends. But people picked. I think back to 2018 when Cesar Sampson from Austria was the jury winner and ended up finishing third overall. And that was a complete shock to a lot of people. The sense was, oh, we were all sleeping on this one. Well, maybe dig into that. Why were we sleeping on that one? And 
what lessons could be learned from that? And is it just because we weren't expecting it from Austria? Was it because we weren't expecting it from a contestant of color? There's a lot to unpack. And I think Eurovision can sometimes make it difficult to unpack things because it's too ephemeral. And by the time you're just like, oh, we should unpack this. Next year's contest has already started. We can't worry about that now. I I will say that I feel like Mahmoud, Italy's entrant with Soldi, he's done very well. He's quite successful as a recording artist. And I like his stuff. And I thought his performance was great. I really liked it. So it's not universal that this happens, but it does tell me that sometimes you can support your own in one context. And as soon as you have to represent yourself to the world, you want to pick something else. But I feel like there has been a pattern of people who seemed like a tiny risk in countries that might not be super excited about it, trying it out. And then if it doesn't work, not doing it again. In my head, the exception that proves the rule is Aminata, the woman who writes every song. Yes. (laughs) Because she's a genius. And she was still robbed. I watch that performance when I need to psych up for something, especially in some of the minor countries. Anytime I've seen a black rapper or any sort of R&B artist, not even R&B, but, you know, crooner, Mm -hmm. it feels like pandering. That does get into the sort of level of onlineness with the Eurovision fandom and how it, at least from my point of view, really warps the perception of things. I've not actually counted this out, but it feels like there's maybe 15 tiers of Eurovision fan. There's the person who watches it because there's nothing else on. And then people are just like, oh, I'm going to also watch the semifinals. And then the people who are tweeting about it every day. And then like people who are hosting podcasts about the Eurovision Song Contest in June. (laughs) And then there's the tier where you're making a Mr. Nay fan cam. Right. And the memification of Eurovision. And does that work as a way of attracting people to the contest? Or is it exclusionary gatekeeping? I am both too entrenched in the Eurovision fandom and also too online Mm -hmm. at this point. (laughs) I cannot fully be objective about what to do. Yeah, and I feel like there is a lot of space for bringing people into the fold. I have done so for a lot of people and actually managed to convince a lot of people in Madison, where I'm living now, to watch these videos and get excited about it. I used to troll one of my coworkers by calling up a Eurovision entrant video Anytime he got up to go to the bathroom and didn't lock his computer. (laughs) (laughs) So he would come back and suddenly there's a video from Madlova playing on repeat waiting for him. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Good choice. (laughs) (laughs) You can never go wrong with Moldova. Years later, he still will text me about... Eurovision-related things, even though now he lives in Sacramento and works for an NGO that works with houseless people. We have covered all of that. And he still thinks back to the time when, oh, it's time for me to watch Conchita again? Okay, fine. And I feel like that is possible still. But being very online makes it harder. Mm -hmm. 
it's a in-person evangelism kind of process. You need to be able to play the video on the phone and say, look, she's riding a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dothy Frere was a fantastic gateway drug. Yes. Last year. Yes. Like, think about things. I have shown think about things to multiple people who then have shown it to other people who have shown it to other people. And that's why that went viral last year. Yes. And I don't want to say that Eurovision needs to be more viral because under no circumstances should it be more viral. Virality is the enemy of Eurovision as a larger contest. But my God, a couple of videos that you can share with four or five people that they then share to one or two other people. Glorious. That helps explain why you should watch this thing in May. Yeah, exactly. This is why it was so great Peacock had it, because it was actually possible for people to follow up and watch. Yeah, and I didn't have to give them five minutes of explanation. No, 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 no. You need like a VPN or you can go to the Icelandic website or you can go to Sweden's website. Mm -hmm. It was just nice to just be able to go, no, it's on Peacock. And just thinking about virality, because the thing that I have loved about Eurovision again is going back to these old years. And I expected 1969 to be completely dated, but this still slaps. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is not a word that you should use in describing any of the beautiful kind of orchestral pop thing that's happening at the end of the 60s. I would love somebody to do... I'm not sure if you guys saw the movie Cold War, the uh, Polish black and white. Yes. I, I saw that in a theater when it was getting hyped for the Oscars, and it was beautiful. It's gorgeous. Can you imagine a version of that movie that was about Eurovision? That is something that would basically blow my mind and I would crumble to dust and just die happy. Now that we have Eurovision Fire Saga as the comedy version of this, I would love to see the drama version of it. But yeah, because that movie does such a great job of pulling in folk music as well. So you could totally do a Eurovision version. Yeah, and it also talks about the ways that borders collapse and change you have yugoslavia you have the berlin wall there's a lot of really gorgeous history that you can start thinking about if you're a nerd that comes after the pop songs and whether you get into them through the orchestral stuff or the dua lipa knockoff you can still do it it's nowhere near the same sector of things is this but another area where i feel like there's still this sort of sourness in the fandom would be the the continuation of the barbara dex award they're trying to rework it but i'm not sure they're approaching it from the right angle the barbara dex award is named for barbara dex whose outfit was quote-unquote bad a dress that she made for herself because it was that era of eurovision and we've continued to award just the haha look at this terrible outfit award i think that we should retire the barbara dex award completely and tell everyone that it's just not okay because if we were talking about a local talent show it would be deeply classist and obnoxious and that's essentially what it is on a national level thinking about tanya harding nancy kerrigan it's the same sort of classism who has access to what level of costuming sort of a deal that is absolutely right it is the figure skating gatekeeping of eurovision and also, it's just weird because we all saw how badly it worked when Logo had Eurovision. And there was another layer of bitchy commentary on top of regular commentary. Yeah, I actually didn't see any of the Logo coverage. I would just stream it through the Swedish feed and they 
treat your vision like church, so only speak when absolutely <laughs> necessary. <laughs> the logo year was a dark one. I've never been more furious in my life because they ruined all of the best moments by talking about what people were wearing or trying to make jokes about the pyrotechnics. And this is still a huge output of resources to show off something great from a country. And I still believe very deeply that that's important to respect. And it's why I think that anything that's really mean or feels mean just has no place in the contest anymore. We're at a bad part in the like of history. We should absolutely celebrate every opportunity to love on somebody's costume or somebody's weird hair or somebody's sweetness. Part of the charm of Eurovision for me is seeing these fully realized performances and it's just such a sour note. That award got handed over from whatever fan site started it in the 90s to songfestival.be. Starting with this year, they've changed the award criterion so that it is the the most striking look. My thought is you can have the award be that instead, but you can't call it the Barbara Dex Award. You can't pivot like that and still call it the same thing because that name still has meaning. And I know we vaguely talked about this, but I think the Nikki Award is a fantastic attempt at moving into a new space for Eurovision and bringing new energy to it. This year especially was a great year for that because everyone was so excited and so positive about each other that I can't imagine another time that you'd be able to re-channel that energy in that same way. I agree. Yeah, I, I think this year in particular was such an opportunity for so many people to just recharge their batteries and step back and be like, all right, what's working? What's not working? Let's get rid of the stuff that's not working or retool it or at, at least get it on the back burner. Yeah, just clean house. Yes. I think that's going to be something that's interesting next year to see which countries continue in that direction or have learned from those lessons. I think there are a number of countries that are figuring a lot of stuff out and really going to have the opportunity to change up the game for the next few years, which is good. The game needed a, a judge. I feel like the UK just wants to tell a story right now that everybody hates us because of Brexit and they're applying that to everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. But just because Will Ferrell made a joke about it in a movie that came out last year doesn't mean it's actually true. They can choose a different path. Absolutely. And the justification for why everybody allegedly hates the UK has been changing a lot over the last 15 years. I first associated it with their support of the Iraq war and then the fact that they have big five status and then this and that and the other thing. And it's just like, OK, maybe it's an attitude adjustment here or learn to love yourself so that others can love you. I don't know. <laughs> when was the last time you watched Children of the Universe? Because that, that song. song, oh <laughs> my god. That was the one that convinced me that the UK's enthusiasm for their Eurovision entry is inversely proportional to my enthusiasm for it. It did not hold up well in 2014, and it certainly does not hold up well now. <laughs> I remember being really into that one, and now I listen to it, I'm just like, this is a song that you put in a Doctor Who Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, whatever episode of a Skins reunion Embers plays on, I will be into it. 
I, I have that one pegged for Love Island. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that would also work. Like, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing a tweet where somebody just put the horn line on top of a promo for Love Island. I'm like, yes, this, this fits. Any Skins reunion that doesn't have all of the people who have actually become successful in Hollywood just showing up and it's four people at a sad pub. And then the horns come on. Oh, oh God, that's so much darker than I even imagined it. <laughs> <laughs> So in trying to investigate these sort of larger societal issues that are present in your vision, how do you break those sort of stories down into something that's manageable? Racism at Eurovision. That is a very large topic that you could not fit in a 45-minute podcast. Drawing on your experience from working on Patriot Act, how do you get into the more central issues to be specific, but also have the opportunity to open up to a more general viewpoint, if if that question makes sense. It does. And I think that the way that I would see it happening is that there would be one example of one country that has a history of, you know, whether it's colonialism or problems, I guess like you could even start with Cyprus frankly, because Turkey and Greece in the 70s, that was a big deal. Oh, right. I did a whole bunch of research (laughs) on that last year. (laughs) Where I was like, surprise, Mike, everybody's fought over Cyprus. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, in my mind, I would eventually be overruled for something a little bit less obscure if I was pitching this episode. But Mm -hmm. I would start with Cyprus because I think they always put out bangers All of their performers are always super hot. They're fun. Lots of very hot guys as backup dancers. Everybody looks like they're coming out of the Springfield Steel Factory. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Pride, everybody. It's also been a massive source of political tension for decades and caused huge problems in Eurovision. And that has always felt like a really good way to get into it and say, yeah, land plus pop music equals sad face. I don't think Cyprus would immediately jump to mind for... A lot of people not directly affected by Cyprus. But yeah, there's so much to dig into there, like their relationship with Greece and how they always give each other 12 points. And there's always booing when that happens. And it's like, (laughs) well, why is there that booing? And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's an easy thing to jump to the former SSRs. And I think that's all very legitimate. But these issues have been going on for so much longer than the last 30 years. And... That's where I started to get really fascinated by it. It was happening decades ago. Like before I was even born, people were starting to plan their way to support Cyprus or get Cyprus to start voting for them in Eurovision. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Yeah, thank you. I had a great time and I always love talking Eurovision with people who also love it. Where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Meredith L. Clark and Instagram the same. Shortly, I will have a website that you can access by checking out my bio on both of those places. So there you go. 
Excellent. That is going to do it for this episode of the EuroWhat. Thanks for listening. The EuroWhat podcast is hosted by Mike McComb. That's me. And Ben Smith. That's me. You can subscribe to the EuroWhat on the podcast app or service of your choice. If you would like to support the show, you can also check us out at patreon.com slash EuroWhat. Show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at EuroWhat.com. If you'd like to contact us, we're at EuroWhat on Twitter, or you can email EuroWhatPodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the EuroWhat, we're going to talk about the Hatsuri documentary, A Song Called Hate, with our special guest, Evan Stewart. 